Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, August the 26, 2019. This is episode 2497 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, so it's time for a listener feedback show. Hey, would you like to contribute to a show like this? Would you like to give me an idea to talk about? Provide me an article in the news and what's going on. We used to get a ton of those. We get a lot less of that now. I guess my uh, my call out to you guys to worry less about what the news says and more about your own backyard uh, maybe worked a little too well. Uh, do you have a problem you're trying to deal with, something you're trying to plan for, something like that? Any of those things, you can send me an email to jack at com. Again, people say, what is it? I mean, I didn't know how to email you. I have the most public email address of any public-facing personality there is. It's a real email that I go into every day and I actually read. Jack at the com. The big thing is, put TSPC in the subject line. That'll make sure that if it does go into the spam box eventually, I get around to digging it out and I will review it. If you want to do it for a show like this, make sure that you follow the bottom line up front method. Make your point, ask your question, or give me the link to the article. Hit the return key a couple times, and then give me your details. The more bottom line up front you are, the more direct, the more you can bury down the, the, nebula, you know, the, the core issue to one sentence, the more likely you are to have me actually read the details and get on the show. People that lead off with four paragraphs of details that are all over the map and then maybe sort of make a point, generally that does not get on the air because of time. I have to do all of this myself, just so you guys understand. This is a big week, guys. We're going to end August, which uh, heads us into kind of the downhill part of the year. If you think about it, we go through September, the kids are back in school. If you got young people, maybe they're starting out in college, like my uh, nieces this year. Um, you got all that stuff going on. There's kind of a, a big, huge hubbub of activity in August. You kind of coast back into the regular life going into fall. Next thing you know, it's October. Next thing you know, it's October. People start decorating for Halloween. Next thing you know, it's November. Uh, everybody's mind is on Turkey Day and Thanksgiving. And then you've kind of entered the realm of the holidays, which, you know, I know people get all ass bunched up when you say the holidays. It's Christmas. No, man, it's the holidays. I don't mean it as a replacement for Merry Christmas. I'll tell you Merry Christmas and you don't bother me. What I mean by the holidays is I kind of feel like this whole period from Thanksgiving all the way to New Year's is the holiday season. And you're into that. And then next year, in the year 2020, and it's going to roll hard. I mean, I feel like this year rolled pretty fast. We got to August, and it just slowed down for some reason, but it's fixing to pick up again. And then this week will end with episode 2500. I'm going to throw a rewind in on Thursday and made a few adjustments to be able to do that. And uh, that will let us run episode 2500 on Friday. And I will be working all day Thursday on it because a flurry of uh, calls came in at the last minute, and I had a feeling that would happen. There's... There's over 160 Jack Your Jerk calls for episode uh, 2500. Uh, I'll have to go through them, make sure there's no ass clowns that manage to sneak in there, uh, get them all put together, and uh, all, the whole show edited. I'll be doing that all day Thursday, and then I'm going to take Friday off to celebrate. And one of the ways that I think that really works out for you guys, though, is I'm going to have episode 2500 out like really early in the morning. Probably like I'll pre-preset it to publish itself at like 6 o'clock in the morning. What that means is if you want like a lift going into a weekend, how about listening to your fellow community members on the way to work and on the way home? 
That's why I did that for a lot of you guys that are still in the mobile metal coffin they call a car, going to and from your job every day. And uh, that that would be a, just... I just thought that would be a nice thing to do and drop that on a very early on a Friday. With that, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Here's what we got. Um, we have a quote of the week today because uh, Friday is going to be the feedback show, so I'll be telling you about a quote from Ernest Hemingway that's often misquoted about cats and anarchy. Um, more on neglected garden beds. We got another question on that. This came from Me We Monday Chat. A uh, question on how much effect the media can really have on the economy. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Dealing with bindweed, preventing muscle loss as we age, dealing with off-leash unknown dogs in a public place, um, what to do with an unused above-ground pool if you don't want a pond, and that kind of stifles me a bit. Yet another use for a sous-vide circulator, uh, making a keto-friendly and healthy blue cheese dressing. This is going to be something that's good for people that are uh, keto, low-carb, whatever, except blue cheese dressing really is not that big of a, a stick alert there anyway. The healthy thing is, is really a big deal, especially if you don't want to be using soybean oil because almost every blue cheese dressing out there and almost every mayo out there is made with soybean oil. So I'm going to tell you how to avoid that and make a much better product for yourself. You're going to get a two-for-one. I'm going to tell you how to make your really high-quality mayo And I'm going to tell you how to turn that mayo into awesome blue cheese dressing. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Uh, Western Botanicals is a company that I've been working with since uh, 2009. So 10 years. 10 years we've worked with Western Botanicals. There's a reason. Number one, if it's herbal and legal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. Number two, it will be wild-crafted or organically grown, or it will not be there. Number three, if you want something to make your own formulas and stuff like that, like menthol crystals for deep heating rubs, beeswax, all the other stuff that goes on, in addition to pre-prepared preparations and the raw herbs, you can get that as well. Number four, they will never lie to you or mislead you. Number five, if you call them a real person that really cares about you, will really answer the phone and actually talk to you. Why else, you know, what else could I, you know, why else, why would I not want to work with a company like that? And then let me add to it. Uh, they have a really cool program called their Discount Buyers Club. And the way that works is you pay 50 bucks a year and you get 25% off everything. If you use a lot of herbal supplements or raw herbs, that easily pays for itself. But if you're a member of my MSB, you get it for free. 100% absolutely for free just by being an MS, MSB member. So, I mean, they just bring so much to the table, and herbs are so important in our walk as preppers. I'm really grateful to have a company like them with us. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and, and says what it does. All the resources you need ready-made and ready to go, from the practical to the tactical, from the guns to the gardens, and everything in between. You can check them out at ReadyMadeResources.com. And another company's been with us since 2009. 10 years. There's not a lot of, you know, I, I actually said one time, I don't think anybody out there has a podcast that's been running, you know, 11 years and has had a sponsor that's been with them for 10 or more. And uh, somebody emailed me, and I don't remember who it was or what the podcast was, but there was like a, there is a podcast out there that has a sponsor that's been with them for like 15 years or something like that, which is awesome. It has to be like one of the first podcasts ever um, to even be around 15, 16 years now. Um, but, That's one. You know, if you look at our sponsors, 
there's probably half of them have been with us, you know, eight to ten years. That that's crazy and uh, really loyal guys. You know, we're coming up on 2,500 episodes, and we have we have you know ready-made resources um, along with Safe Castle, Western Botanicals, and probably somebody I'm leaving out that I shouldn't. Those guys, honestly, if I would have been willing to take their money earlier, they would have been with us almost from day one and never strayed, man. So, you know, think about that when you're doing business and, and, and supporting the sponsors that support the show that you listen to. All right, with that, let's get into it. I want to start out with a quote of the week. Uh, we're doing it again on a Monday because Friday will be the 2500 uh, landmark episode. Uh, there's a quote by Ernest Hemingway. I see pictures of Ernest and his cats, various cats. He was very much a cat lover. Uh, all over Facebook and MeWe and Twitter and some other places. And usually what it says is either just the cat is the best anarchist, and that's that's really not a misquote at all. And then the other one is usually no no animal has more liberty than the cat. The cat is the best anarchist. That's not a wrong quote, but it's leaving out a piece. You know, it's one of those ones that should have like a dot, 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 indicating that there's something left out. The full actual quote is no animal has more liberty than the cat, but it buries the mess that it makes. The cat is the best anarchist. So let's think about that in totality for a cat and then what it means for us. Number one, the cat, especially an outside cat or an outside-inside cat, a cat that can come and go at will, could leave. And you say, but Jack, the cat depends on you for food and water. No. It appreciates the fact that you feed and give it water. Unless you have a lazy, fat cat that can't hunt, no cat needs you. Let me tell you right now, my little gray cat, Dana, she doesn't need anybody. I've seen that cat pull a bird off of a bird feeder six feet in the air from a, from a, from a dead jump in one motion and do like a half gainer and come down with it in her mouth. Right? She doesn't need to be here. She chooses to be here. She has complete liberty to leave anytime she wants. Now, it's pretty good here. You know, they have three acres of fenced-in area where they don't have to fight off any other cats because they got the, the, the gruesome threesome of dogs who will defend their territory for them. And they do get food, and they do get water, and they do get pet, and they do have additional shelter, and they have nice, comfortable places to sleep. I'm not saying that they don't get anything out of this. I'm saying they choose it. And if the good part helps make them make the choice, well, that's fine. But they are truly an anarchist. They do as they please. They don't care, you know. They have learned the rules, though. Because the rules, they're voluntarily here, but they have the liberty to leave. And some of the rules are you don't mess with the livestock. So they don't mess with the ducks, even the baby ducks, even though it's against their basic instincts. So they are truly an anarchist. The, the other part of it, though, is, you know, what Ernest says about they clean up their own mess. Basically, they bury their waste. So cats, when they pee or they poo, they bury it. You never walk around and step in cat crap. See, that is the message for us that not only... If we want to say we're anarchists and we want the freedom to choose, we also do have a responsibility to deal with any of the problems that we create for other people. So that's the full quote. One more time, putting our mind in the right place as we kick off the week. No animal has more liberty than a cat, but it buries its own waste. The mess it, but it buries the mess that it makes. The cat is the best anarchist. With that, let's get into um, the question. So I had a question this morning on MeWe, and really two different questions that I think are a great way to look at the two of them together. So one guy had a bunch of wood that he was trying to kind of rot down and make, you know, kind of a rotted, fungi-infested wood mulch. 
to use, which is a great thing, but it wasn't happening very quickly for him. And the other guy had some garden beds that he just neglected. He just really didn't, you know, keep up with them or what have you. And they had, you know, grown in lots of weeds and stuff like that. And he was wanting to know, you know, what should he do? Should he just go burn it with a torch or, you know, whatever? And um, some of the weeds are pretty high. So what I told the guy with the wood is, well, take a walk in the woods and look around. And it won't be long before you find some rotted moss growing on it, fungal-infected, moldy, moist, easily crumbled up you know, wood and logs and leaves and, and go to a few different places. Don't take a huge, you don't need a huge amount of this, but if you take like a five-gallon bucket, like a little bit here and a little bit there, and come out with a five-gallon bucket of that, it won't weigh much because if you're taking the right stuff, you're taking very lightweight, fluffy, duffy wood, right, because it's already been really hammered by the fungi. And uh, bring that stuff back wherever you keep in this pile of wood that you want to break down and inoculate. And just sprinkle this stuff all over it and wet it down. Okay. Now, you could either tarp that and then you're really only going to deal with fungi. Or if you have like a really shady area, you can do that a little bit more naturally as long as you keep it wet and leave some ambient light get in. And some of your mosses and lichens and stuff will join the party. And then... That's a really great basic, and it's a very basic version of what the Koreans call IMO, or indigenous microorganisms. You're cultivating fungi, bacteria, mosses, all kinds of stuff that are indigenous to where you live. You're just kind of getting some seed material. And, and that could, again, be a walk in the woods and a place with trails or something like that, a nature center or something. Uh, or it could be like a woodlot, like on the back of your property, you know, wherever you can find it. The closer to home, the better. Well, the other guy said, you know, he had these abandoned garden garden beds, and my response to that was, okay, he said, you know, should I mulch it? Should I chop it? What, you know, what should I do? And so my thought is, the first thing you should do is you should chop down the weeds and just chop and drop them and just lay them on the bed. The one thing I didn't say in the chat though, and I probably should have, is if there's some big seed heads on it, what we're going to do is probably going to take care of that. But let's not let's not exasperate the problem. So let's cut the seed heads off and take them away somewhere else, right? And so we, we cover the garden bed with chopped weeds. And I know you're thinking, well, the, the weeds are just going to grow back and get stronger than ever. Sure they are. We're not going to let that happen, though. So then the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to put down a big layer of wood mulch because he said he has it. If you don't have it, you don't have to do this. If you have straw, put down a layer of straw. If you have straw and mulch, put down a layer of straw a couple inches deep. Then put down a layer of wood mulch on top of it, okay? Wet it down really good. And then do the same thing the wood guy did and get a bunch of crumbled up kind of rotting wood and things like that and sprinkle it all over your garden beds. You don't need a lot. You're seeding this stuff. Then wet it down really good again. Throw a tarp over it. What's going to happen is you got a, quite a bit of summer left, quite a bit of really hot days, and it's going to bake in that heat you know you're going to bake seeds you're going to ruin weeds whatever and you might end up killing off most of that good stuff so maybe what you do when you get to where the weather turns maybe you go get some more of it pull your tarp up throw a little bit more of it down and hold it there through the winter when you get to spring there ain't going to be no weeds 
everything's going to have died in the heat of the late summer, early fall. You might have some rhizomes or something you have to deal with, but pretty much you've knocked it out. You've solarized it. And everything will have broken down. And what you can do in late spring, you know, pull that tarp off and apply a fresh layer of mulch. And before you do that, give it a good hit of organic fertility of some kind, either compost or organic fertilizer or both. Um, and then go ahead and give it another layer of mulch and start and water that in. And then when you're ready, plant. You'll probably have the best garden year you've ever had. You want to take it to another level? Go buy your feed store. And for this, don't worry about whether it's conventional feed or whatever. Ask them if they have like any bags of feed that are ripped or torn. And you don't even care if it's horse feed, chicken feed, uh, sweet feed. Sweet feed would be great. Anything that's been messed with by insects or torn, a little bit spilled. Like, do they want to sell cheap? And you might be able to get, like, I got some bags of feed that way, some sweet feed one time at our local place for like six fifty a bag. And there wasn't really anything wrong. I could have fed it to the birds, honestly. It wasn't really bad. It just had been torn, and they got some weevils in it. Well, the ducks don't care if there's weevils in it. They'll eat them. But, yeah, they sold me like four bags for six bucks a bag. Spread that out, you know, when you go to put that last mulch layer down, and it'll summon the earthworms. You can even do that right now. Because right, that's going to summon the earthworms and summon the bioorganisms you're going to feed them. And you do that, and you almost can't not have an amazing bang up here. And then there's no reason to deal with those weeds. Uh, next one I have today comes in from a guy named uh, Frank, and he's in North Carolina. Frank says, hey, Jack, I've been watching the news talking heads. Yeah, I know I shouldn't, but sometimes I can't resist. I understand, Frank. I like to talk about current events. It's okay. Uh, anyway, he says, uh, right now it seems like MSNBC and CNN are touting the fact that we're going to go into a recession as though they're excited about it because they hate the orange man. Fox News, on the other hand, seems to prevent, presenting countering information as to why we're probably not headed into a recession, at least anytime soon, and that if we do, it's probably the fault of mainstream media, of which they seem to be oblivious that they are part of. I completely agree. And even the orange man himself has said that the media is now touting a potential recession because they want him out of office. I don't know whether any of this is true or not, and I don't really care whether or not the orange man gets reelected. <laughs> is it just me or does it sound funnier every time he calls him the old orange man? Anyway, I don't care if the orange man gets reelected or not. Uh, my real question for you is putting all of the politics as to the why aside. Do you believe, one, the media can cause a recession? Two, can the media actually have that much effect, i.e., could they actually prevent a recession by you know, cheerleading the other side? Uh, and three, am I crazy for even asking this question? Thanks a lot, Frank. Carolina. All right, so here's the deal, Frank. Um, I, I would say that there is no doubt that the media can repress the economy if they chant long enough and loud enough and hard enough and scare people. So the, 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 the crux of the question really, if you want to look at it the right way, is can consumer behavior, absent an actual problem, create a recession in our economy? And the answer is, to a large degree, yes. So 
the the counter to that though is that it's very much against human instinct and human behavior. So the way this works is, you know, you're you're there, Frank, and you're sitting there thinking about buying a new home, and you're thinking about maybe moving up a little bit. You want to sell your house, move up, but you've been in your house like 11 years, and your payment's relatively low compared to your income. The house is a little small. That's why you're thinking about moving up. But you're sitting here thinking, if something kind of goes south, man, I can afford this home no problem. So. The TV starts telling you a recession's coming, and instead of being a thinking person like you are, Frank, you are the typical American sheep, and you start thinking, oh, man, I, uh, I, I better stay put and not sell my house. All right. Now, your impact on even your zip code is extremely limited. That's extremely limited. Uh, and then down the street from you, there's a guy, and since I get beat up for using Mike and Tom and Sam all the time, we'll call the guy down the road, Fernando, right? So now I can, so Fernando's living in an apartment. He's a kind of mid, mid, mid-level millennial in his early, mid-twenties. He's out of school. He's got a job. He's thinking about buying his first house because his rent's high enough that he probably could afford a house. And he gets scared, and he doesn't now buy a house that you're not selling but so your neighbor down the road doesn't buy into this so he's selling but Fernando's not there to buy his house again even your zip code by those two things alone is probably not affected but if there are thousands upon thousands of Franks and Fernandos and Bobs and Toms and Susans and Debbies and you know uh, Marys and what have you all over the country that are all in this kind of holding pattern and either deferring large purchases or they are abstaining from them, then, yeah, that alone can start maybe, let's say, some weakness in the real estate market. Well, then that can all have a, you know, a, a, a following effect. And if this all kind of leads up going into a Christmas season and... People don't not shop, but they just say, you know, maybe we should spend a little less money than last year, which is actually probably a good decision if it's for the right reason, and that means we're going to save the money, invest the money, or whatever. But if they just curtail the credit card spending, and they're still broke anyway, but they feel better about it, and, and the average person spends 100 bucks less, and we take that across millions and millions of Americans, and then the numbers for Christmas come, and, and they don't look so good going into 2020. And then the talking heads have that to show as proof that a recession is coming. And that creates more fear. And then the bears take their piece of the profits off of Wall Street. And the market doesn't drop 700 points in a day, which today, no matter how much they scream about it, really isn't that big of a deal when the damn market's 25,000, 26,000 on the Dow. But it tumbles down 2,000 points. People freak out. Oh, here it is all over again. Everybody starts calling their financial liar and saying, hey, I want to put some of my money in cash. People log into their accounts in their 401k and they make that move on their own and go into bonds or whatever and start selling off stocks because they don't want to take the bath like they did back in 2008 and all of a sudden you can end up in a completely behavior driven recession because the economy is almost like some sort of a religious god in a way that it responds to the worshipers and those are the consumers And we have a society that worries about things that, that no sane group of people would ever worry about. 
because everybody now is an investor, almost everybody anyway. Almost anybody with a decent job has a 401k. So they feel at least look at the stock market. They at least sort of pay attention to it. Where in the past what people did is like, do I have money and can I afford my shit? And can I, at the end of the month, do I have more money than I started with because I put some away? But now everybody's an expert. Everybody's paying attention. Everybody's tying in. Everybody's on social media talking about the orange man's bad, the orange man's good, whatever. So they're a lot more susceptible to the movement of the hand that creates a wave that turns into the tidal wave of, of, of public behavior. And the thing is that once the mindset is there, that, hey, this is coming, then you begin to look for corroborating evidence in absence of logic. Anything that seems to allude to the fact that the thing you believe is going to happen is going to happen. So it's almost like a mass hysteria conspiracy theory of confirmation bias that we're going into a recession. And each action then takes you deeper into it. Then you add the orange man's very poor decision-making on how to deal with China. And I know some of you are fans, but this was stupid. And I, I hated that a lot of people that I guess are on the liberty, libertarian, anarcho side made it out to be as though the conservatives wanted tariffs. Because that's not what anybody, including Orange Man, wanted, right? It's not they wanted tariffs. It's that China was tariffing the shit out of our stuff. So the logical course of fighting back is, well, we'll tariff the shit out of their stuff. And if they tariff ours more, we'll tariff theirs more. And if they back and forth and back and forth until we can get them to lower their shields, and then we'll lower our shields and we'll have more free trade. Well, you're not dealing with, like, Europe here or Canada. You're dealing with China. And China doesn't give a shit about their people in general. They really don't. Um, and what I mean by that is, it, overall, if if their economy tanks and their people have to go through recession and they have to suffer and some people die, the, the government's not going to change its stance because of that. They don't care. They don't even have the, the you know any real impetus because President Xi is probably going to be President Xi whether China goes into a recession or not, unlike President Trump. China is totally willing to play the long game. They're totally willing to accept that Orange Man might get reelected, even with the trade war. And that, yeah, if he gets reelected in five years, we still get another clown to deal with, and maybe they'll want to play ball by then by the time there really is a serious recession. And I think that's kind of where they're coming from, and I don't see them budging much. And they may actually get to a point where they feel that they're better off playing the long game, where... I think there's a point in time where Trump had a, comp, a potential to make a deal with them to come out of it, and they looked like they got some of the, what they wanted. He looked like he got it some of what he wanted, and then it all kind of went away. And then his critics would all say, well, he's an idiot, and he gave China everything. And then his, 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 his supporters would have been like, oh, no, no, he's playing 4D chess, man, whatever. And, and both would have been part right and part wrong, because that's just how that shit always works out. But I think we're past that now. And I think it's one of the biggest kind of bugaboos that we have. The other side of it, China's building massive amounts of manufacturing facilities and plants here in Texas. I'm talking multi-billion dollar facilities, specifically on the Texas coast. It's just what's going in down there is kind of insane. And one of my good friends is on some projects down there, but there's so much more than like even what he's working on. Um, and... The simple matter of fact is they want to make their money, and tariffs do impact trade relationships. 
So, yeah, maybe the price of the cheap junk that you buy will go up. It, it most certainly will. But how much do Americans need it? And the answer is we don't need it much at all. But how much does it drive the American economy? And the answer is quite a great deal. So can the media create a recession? Yes. Will they? Probably not. However, they can certainly exasperate a minor recession into a major one. And I think that's what's more likely to happen. Some sort of a minor downturn could be exasperated into a major downturn by fueling the fire as it happens. If you don't actually get the underlying causes of a true recession before, you know, people freak out. It's very hard because now you're asking people to go against their nature. I want this shiny thing, and I can have this shiny thing, and I still have my job, and I still have my money, and there's a few hundred extra bucks in the bank, so I'm going to get my shiny thing. And, and I just don't think you're going to steer that much public behavior in the absence of some real issues, at least not yet. But we'll see as they go forward. Good question, though. Another garden problem here. This one's from Marty. Marty says, talk to me about bindweed. Jack, I just heard your advice on very herb garden for the caller from Virginia. I have a similar situation in Maryland where I planted blackberries and raspberries in my raised bed along with putting some herbs, basil, mint, rosemary, thyme, cilantro into containers which sit in the raised bed as well. The berry bushes are in year three and are giving fruit. Not as much as I would like, but they're fruiting. The herbs are doing great. My problem is bindweed. I'm away on business for about a month in the summer, usually the entire month of July, so I can't weed my garden. When I return home inevitably, I have bindweed climbing all over everything. I pull it down, but it grows so fast that it wraps around everything, and pulling it up rips off the berries and leaves. Is there anything you can recommend short of just getting in there and constantly ripping it all out? Will anything stop it from popping up in every inch of space between the berry bushes? Thanks, Marty. Okay, so we have multiple issues with bindweed. One is, even though it primarily keeps coming back due to rhizomes, uh, it does flower, and it kind of they kind of look like morning glories, like wild morning glory, which is kind of what they are. And those flowers do produce seed, and that seed will also germinate and more, make more bindweed. So one of the most important things we want to do, first of all, is wherever we can control it, we want to cut it off at the ground uh, before it flowers. Because if it doesn't flower, at least we don't have any seeds. The next, yeah, mechanically removing it is about the best situation, but when it's buried in with you know, blackberry root crowns and stuff like that, it may not be very doable. What you might want to try, and I'm not 100% sure this will work, but it may work for you, is um, I guess you'd call it intermittent tarping. Uh, maybe using burlap or uh, tarp or plastic and basically go in and it'd be like a great time to do this would be like you are where you are right now. Pick the berries you can. Everything's growing crazy. Uh, I know that you are uh, in Maryland. You said so. You're in a northern climate. Everything's going to die back. You're going to have a winter to work on this. And so at that point, you cut everything back. Any mulch you have, go ahead and pull it, pull it off. And uh, go ahead and wherever you can find any bindweed uh, coming up out of the ground, what's left of it, go ahead and try to pull it out. But what's going to happen is, unless you get really religious about it, when you pull it out, the rhizomes will break. And this is why, like, if you have bindweed in a place, don't till it. If you till it, you'll just piss it off and make more. Because every little piece of rhizome, kind of like comfrey works, is going to come back. 
So if you cut the rhizome into like five rhizomes, you just made five bindweed plants instead of one. So you pull up what you can and then lay down tarping, you know, patchwork tarping all in between and surrounding your plants so that there's no place for the bindweed to come up and then throw your mulch over that more as a weight to hold it down. And then this spring, you got to be really religious. I know that you say you travel or whatever, but hire a local kid to come over once a week and just cut it and just cut it and just cut it and just cut it and just cut it. And eventually, that tuber, that rhizome, will have expended so much energy, it's just going to crap out and die. A way to actually accelerate that, but you got to stay on it then, is let that go, let, let, let it come up a little bit. You know, instead of just like when it's up an inch, let it come up five, six, seven inches and then cut it off. Because it has to use that reserve to grow that six, seven inches. Let it come up again, cut it off. Let it come up again, cut it off. The good news is it grows pretty fast. So it's going to deplete things pretty quickly. But I'm going to be honest with you. If you tarp it, because it's still going to find ways and places to come through, you're going to probably have to do it for a season or two to eradicate it. And then you're going to want to get really good about always having a thick layer of mulch because it's growing around you and it's seed landing that gets there and causes it in the first place. If you have a good thick layer of mulch, like three to four, even five inches of wood mulch, you're not going to get a lot of germination of bindweed. It's just not going to happen. The One of the real problems with bindweed is a lot of weeds actually start to do really poorly when you bring up fertility. So you can actually usually mitigate a lot of your weed problems only by increasing fertility. There's certain weeds that will grow better with more fertility. Bindweed is one of them, and crabgrass is another one. Crabgrass is the same way. It's a, it's a grass. You almost can't give it. To give it too much nitrogen, you have to give it so much nitrogen, you'll start burning your other plants. Right, So those ones need really aggressive control measures. And then the real problem with bindweed is that it, it vines and it gets up and it'll get on your plants. So don't even try to pull it off the plants because you're right. You're going to destroy your berry crop. Cut it so because it can't live once it's cut. You know, It can't live in the air. So, I mean, that is another thing. And the other thing you can do that would, would really help with this, Marty, is put in a drip irrigation system. If you're irrigating the whole place, then you're giving it everything that it wants. If you throw like a dripper up against each plant, you'll get less weed problems overall. But even tarp, it's going to come up. It's going to find its way. It's like freaking Frankenstein. And once one little piece of it gets up there, it's going to start acting up on you. Um, and that's really the only way to control it. About the only other way, like with berry crops, it can be easy is space your berries out and leave your rows wide enough to mow. And then by mowing in between, you only get little bits of it come up here and there directly underneath, and it doesn't like shade. So the other thing you can do is maybe do a little less pruning of your cane fruits, a little, little bit more shade. Bindweed is a sunflower, man. It, and I don't mean like a species of lanthus. I mean, it's a, it's a thing that likes, like, you got wallflowers, you got shade flowers, you got sunflowers. It's a sunflower. It does not grow. If you have a house and you, you know, your house is set up so there's a south side of it and you have an area behind your house 
that's completely shaded all day long, and you got bindweed everywhere, I guarantee you, if you go back there, it will not have bindweed. You'll have something like English ivy or jewelweed or something will grow there, but bindweed is not going to grow in that ambient light. So anything you can do to shade it out, cover it, cut it, that's about the only way to deal with this. It's one of the toughest things to deal with. Lens now says, uh, Hi, Jack. My question is about maintaining fitness and minimizing muscle loss as we age. Details. My wife and I spend a lot of, outdoor, a lot of time outdoors maintaining and renewing, renovating the garden. We grow most of our own vegetables and fruits. We have 25 acres on the mid-north coast of Australia, which provides us with plenty of time. Fencing and cutting firewood, although pretty much retired, we still do some casual work minding the local cattle farms while their owners are on holiday, uh, or in one case, owners live away, we need a midweek babysitter. Although some of the work does involve heavy lifting, lots of walking, we still feel like we need to do more for aging bodies. What do you recommend do we do to maintain aerobic fitness, strength, and flexibility? Best wishes, Len. Well, you're already on the right path, but I actually find that sometimes people in your situation can think they're doing more than they are, where you got the other issue where you're like, I don't know that I'm doing enough. A lot of times when people, you know, they have a garden, they walk around, they do fencing work and stuff like that, they occasionally lift some hay bales or something, they feel like, I get enough exercise outside. And often if you actually look at it, what they actually have is like these periods of the year where the work is intense, like let's say spring and fall, and the rest of the year it's pretty much just strolling around and pulling. And that's good. That means we have a well-designed system. Our system should not require heavy labor 360 days a year. We've built them wrong. But it also now doesn't make exercise. So the walking, I think one of the things that you can do is most likely you own either an Android or an iPhone. I'm sure there's an app on Android. There's a native app on the iPhone uh, that's a health app that monitors your steps. So one of the things you can do is just before you even think you're getting enough walking in and start monitoring your steps and come up with a goal for yourself. And if you don't meet that goal, take a walk until you do. Uh, the next thing is, especially for your wife, with, with not just muscle but bones, is load-bearing. And I think that load-bearing is incredibly valuable. So you know, even if you just start carrying like a 20-pound pack around uh, with all your gear in it, Uh, and when you take walk, take that pack with you. That can help a lot. Uh, my wife often takes walks, and she will wear my body armor because it's fairly heavy, and it you know nicely distributes the weight across the entire body. So uh, load-bearing hiking, whether it's just a walker, because you got 25 acres or 30 acres, 25 acres. I mean, just one lap around that, you're talking you've walked miles. So that is really good for low-impact aerobics. Um, for exercise, um, my belief is probably your best friend in this world is a, a set of dumbbells. And you want what will seem like somewhat of a light weight for you. So like for a, you know, a reasonably conditioned male, you know, I'm talking something like a, a set of 8s, 15s, and 20s. You know, I know you could probably curl 30s, not real hard. Uh, but then what you want to do is come up with weightlifting exercises that are somewhat rapid in mov movement, but being careful not to cause repetitive joint injuries or overextension injuries. So if you're, you know, moving weight too fast, if it's like punching out with a weight, you, that's a perfect example of what not to do. It's punching all the way out where it puts, you know, a, a, 
unreasonable burden on your tendons and ligaments and your joints. So if you were moving like a punching motion with dumbbells coming out in front of you, you're going to want to stop with that arm still bent, and you want to have control over the momentum. That's what I'm, You don't want momentum injuries doing this, even though you're moving kind of quickly. And come up with a series of, of exercises that you find interesting, and then what you need to be doing is very high amounts of them. So if we want to build big, strong muscle mass, then we want to push ourselves to muscle failure, and we want to do it in a fairly small number of repetitions. So we might, if we're bench pressing for building chest and triceps and things like that, we might want a series where um, we can do 10 reps on the first set, but by the time we get to like our third set, we can only do three. And we can either do that because we start out with a heavy enough weight or we're adding weight. And that extreme push to muscle failure over three to five sets has that, you know, breakdown of the muscles. And if you do the right resting, that's where people get big, strong muscles. If we want to just tone muscle, we want high repetition. But if we do high repetition weight bearing, and we do it at a significant speed. So if you're doing, like, you have two dumbbells and you're doing standing dumbbell curls one arm at a time and you're counting like one two is like right arm left arm the speed i'm talking about is like one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve and yeah you know there's the whole you know bring that arm up slow control it all the way up get to the top kind of turn that you know the right hand the left side of the right hand into the chest with the dumbbell flex the top peak that muscle, that slow, and then slow let it back down. I get that if we're trying to build tone, but if we're trying to do aerobics, we want that rapid without momentum injury. So we can even start lighter until we develop the form. Your wife might have dumbbells, something like, you know, maybe um, a 5, 8, 10, something like that. And whatever it is is whatever it is that works for you. You can always go heavier or lighter. Dumbbells are pretty cheap, and put in with that squats, squats and or lunges, and those you kind of want to be quick with too, but you're not going to do the quantity you can um, without having some real you know, leg pain, but doing some squats and lunges built in with that, with walking, with load bearing, that's going to just do so much for you, and then try to vary your workouts, so um, this is something I can only explain so deeply on the show, but don't do the same exercises every day. You know, Come up with as many different ways to move your body as you can and be careful with the momentum injuries. I mean, really, if you have to, and you might find that you know, like your three weights, again, I said you know, something like 10, 15, 20, 8, 12, 15, whatever, that some exercises you want to do are not suitable with the heavier weights. And then you might have to have one more set a little bit lighter because there might be a lot more potential for momentum injury. So even though you're moving quickly, what you never want to be doing is throwing the arm out, right? Or throwing the arm up or, you know, throwing the shoulders back. The shoulders need to come back if you're doing like a shoulder roll where you're controlling the momentum. You're just moving at a pace, and then look to do something along the lines of three to five sets per exercise, and you should sweat and your heart should, should increase. If your heart rate and your sweating 
You're breathing a little hard. You kind of feel like, gee, I feel like I kind of ran a little bit. Not like I ran a 100-yard dash five times as fast as I could, but like that boom, 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 boom. And you've got that kind of aerobic thing going on, even though you're not moved, you know, jumping around and, come on, let's go. Like, you're not doing that. You're getting all of that from weight training, and it doesn't take long. You know, 10, 15 minutes a day will do wonders for you. That's just my thought on that. Next one comes from Tommy. Tommy says, what is the best way to deal with off-leash dogs on a public trail? Uh, the only walking trails close to my home are all heavily used by people with their dogs. Mostly everybody keeps their dogs leashed up, but often you come across someone with a dog or dogs unleashed and running free. Usually the free roaming dogs don't mess with anyone, but every so often you come across a dog that makes you wonder if you're about to have to defend yourself or your family. Now that I have small children, I find myself maybe a little bit hypersensitive. Depending on the situation and the mood I get caught in, I minimum drop stank high at the owner. Uh, and have a man-to-man chat with him at maximum. I don't want to hurt a dog because his owner lacks discretion, but I also don't want to have a strange dog jumping on me or my family, possibly biting anyone. A reasonable person would know that this is not the place to let your dogs roam. There are signs on every trail requiring all dogs to be leashed, but I don't want to get involved with the authorities. I always carry a six-inch blade, but I'm considering getting one of those stun gun flashlights. Hopefully the noise would be enough to scare them off. Also, I don't want to have to turn uh, every other leisure family walk into confrontation. What would Jack do? Uh, thanks for giving me some interesting to listen to every day. Tommy in Virginia, lots of Northeasterners today. Um, so first of all, I would get yourself a size, you know, whatever's legal and comfortable size-wise uh, pepper spray. And I would carry it with you at all times in a way where it's easily accessible. And if you're there with your wife, she would have one too. And I would much rather have somebody pissed off because I pepper sprayed their dog than I shot their dog. And a lot of times places like you're talking about may not be legal for carry. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but I don't want to shoot anybody's dog anyway. And that's the first thing I'm going to do. And, and I'll relate a story I told a lot when we first started this show about pepper spray. Um, this was a private area, but it was where I lived in Arkansas. And I had neighbors about three houses down, and sometimes we would walk down that way. And they had a pit. Catahoula mix that she was just a bitch and I don't mean as in female dog and this dog was a bitch and she was she looked like she could do some damage and she looked like she was dangerous and I tried to make friends with her and she would come right up to you and she would get flat to the ground and threatening and you know I would try to talk to her and usually she'd just let us pass but I mean it got to be a bit unnerving and so the one day I'm walking down there and I've got a gun on one side and I've got a can of pepper spray on the other and she comes up and starts doing that and she got a little bit more aggressive and I pulled that can of pepper spray out and I sprayed you know a quarter second if that pop of pepper spray just on the ground in front of her and that was that dog left and if she had made a move toward me she would have got it full on in the face at that point because I'm not getting bit And my wife's not getting bit. If my kids are with me, they're damn well not getting bit either. Now, I want to mitigate this a little bit. Odds are if a guy or you know a woman are walking dogs in a public area where people are everywhere and they have a dog off the leash, that dog is probably not a threat. Not because our, our, our moron is so, so good at dealing with his dog and knows his dog so well. Because if the dog was going to be aggressive... To you, it would probably be aggressive to other people. Now, that said, I don't need a really excited 100-pound animal that I don't know jumping up onto my kid, even if it doesn't mean to do any harm, because it can hurt the kid or scare the kid. 
So the dog needs to go. So you also probably want to use some vocal commands. Like if that dog gets a little closer than you're you know, comfortable with, get. Most dogs kind of, even if they've never heard that command, get. They're like, oh, okay, this is not a good place for me. And they'll go bother somebody else. That's another thing that you can do. Now, I'm going to tell you that in this situation, I have no problem going, hey, bud, is this your dog? It, it is? Oh, that's great. You know, he should be on a leash. Oh, he he's not dangerous? I know. I understand. But this is a public place. Other people have dogs. Have you ever thought about the fact that somebody else here might have a dog that can tear the crap out of your dog and kill your dog? And, and that that dog will be fine unless your dog forces itself on that dog? And maybe that owner will be pissed off and let go of the leash and that dog will kill your dog? Have you ever thought about that? See... When you tell the person, and maybe a little bit nicer than I just did, but when you tell the person their dog might be at risk, they're a lot more likely to actually correct the problem when you tell them their dog is a risk to somebody else. See, in their head, in their head, that dog isn't going to hurt anybody. And see, that's stupid because, you know, I have three dogs, and my least aggressive dog, Lucy, who's about 60 pounds, she's a Husky pit bull mix, She's never really aggressive with anybody except at the front gate. Loves everybody that comes here. Can be really timid at times. If she gets scared, she pees. She hides under the bed. Not an aggressive dog. There's one guy that comes here named Steve. And he's lucky Charlie and Max like him. Because if none of my dogs like you, you know, he'd be out. But he's a really good dude, and I like him. And I'm glad my other dogs say he's okay. But there's some reason that Lucy doesn't like him. And... We deal with it when he's here. And, you know, I have enough control on her to do, but she doesn't like him. She, it's not, I don't really worry she's going to bite him, but she growls at him. Like, he's learned to just not look at her, not talk to her, ignore her, and then everything goes fine. And he can pet the other dogs and all. Now, that could, now she's a stray. It could be that some asshole owned her and beat her, and maybe he wears the same hat that Steve wears. Maybe Steve... You know, because of his work or because of where he lives or something. Maybe there's a smell on him that is associated with something she doesn't like. You have no reason to know why. Well, the problem is that you don't know how any one of your animals is going to react to any person and see them that way. And now they're out and about. But again, I'm back to the dog's more at risk than, than people are. You know, do you know that I'm going to spray your dog in the face with pepper spray if it jumps on my kid? <laughs> I don't want to. But you see that sign. Right, yeah, we're getting strafed by F-35s today. You see that sign over there? Like, and I wouldn't do it in a threatening way. I just say, hey, you know, there's some people around here who have some pretty big dogs. If your dog goes up and gets in that other, their face, they're going to try to pull them off with a leash. But that dog could hurt your dog. I don't want to see your dog get hurt. Not I'm going to hurt your dog, you know. But I mean, I I'll give you a totally different example, but one that that happened once. I was fishing one time at a pond, and I had a gun on me. And some idiot comes up, and he has his dog with him off a leash. And this is like a two-acre pond. He's standing on one side of the pond, I'm standing on the other. He lets his dog walk all the way around the pond without saying a word to him. And the dog is now standing behind me, about 15 feet behind me, and he's looking at me, kind of a little bit aggressive looking. Okay. This asshole says, and this is why I was kind of an asshole back, right? Because I got a dog looking at my neck from behind me, elevated position above me with water in front of me. 
This guy yells across the lake. He bites. I said, really? He'll bite once. And he said, what do you mean? And not wanting to be a brandisher, I just said, if he tries to bite me, I'm going to shoot him, so I suggest you get your dog back under your control. And he called the dog back, and he left mumbling and shit and pissed off. Well, again, but what made it work was... Hey, your dog's at risk here. So I think that, you know, if you're going to have that conversation, explain to them how their dog's at risk. You know, if somebody else is doing what you're doing, now the two dogs can get into it. My dog doesn't fight. Do you know about the other dog? You might have your dog run up on somebody that's afraid that your dog's going to hurt their kid. You know, I'd even make up a story. Last week I was here, dude, and that happened, and there was this big dude, and some guy's dog run up and jumped on this girl, and he kicked that dog really hard. The dog... I don't know if even the dog was going to be okay or not. The cops came, and the cops said that your dog, that the guy's dog was supposed to be on a leash, and there was nothing they could do. You see what I'm saying? Like, instead of being confrontational, be helpful. And, and, and in every situation, you have to figure out what really makes sense. But I have no problem telling the guy that because, no, that didn't happen. But you know what? It could happen. But when you tell somebody something could happen, they think it's a threat. When you say something did happen... And you don't want to see it happen to them. It's a warning. You see what I'm saying? That's just one way that I would look at it. But definitely the pepper spray. And if you ever have to use it and somebody bitches, point to the sign walk on. Okay, next up from Kevin. Kevin said, what would be the most useful conversion to do for an above-ground pool in a cold climate? Where homesteaders would love these slice of land in Maine, USDA Zone 7B, total of 22 acres. The property came with circular above-ground pool measuring 20 feet across, 5 feet deep. I find the pool to be rather useless. The maintenance requirements are not something I'm interested in participating in long term. We already have three large ponds, totaling a little less than two acres with ponds, with an active ecosystem of fish, amphibians, and birds, so I'm not certain if the pool should be converted into a fourth small pond. What would you think about draining the pool and turning it into a large raised bed garden by adding soil? I think it would hold up. Uh, think it would hold up, or am I barking up the wrong tree? I'd love to try my hand at aquaponics, but the system for a large pool would probably not be best for a beginner. Uh, kind of just wondering what to do with 10,000-gallon pool if you wanted to convert it into something useful for the homestead and survival in a cold climate. hope I did the email correctly. Thanks for all you do. We love the show. You're one of the main reasons we left the hellish San Francisco Bay Area for our slice of freedom. Thanks for reading, Kevin. Kevin, dude, um... I think that your idea of making it into a raised bed is terrible. I, I, I don't even want to do the mathematical calculation on the amount of earth it would take to put in there. And I think then you would have as an eyesore. And if you ever want to sell your property, and I know it's your dream home, and you probably don't, but you always want to have an extra strategy, and that's one of those things you don't want to do. Um, I'm going to tell you that you have a round thing designed to hold 10,000 gallons of water. That is pretty much, in my opinion, the only thing that it would be really good at. Uh, it's too big to do just about anything else with. Um, now, there are some things you can do with above-ground pools. Um, if you wanted to do aquaponics, you actually can make above-ground pools into smaller versions of themselves. The difference between an 8-foot round and a 20-foot round above-ground pool is there's more panels in the 24-foot round. So you can actually take it apart, relocate it, and make something more like an 8-foot round pool, and you would have a really big tank to do aquaponics in 
Um, let me do the math real quick on that. It might be too big anyway. Uh, you're about 1,880 gallons. Um, you're going to have actually about 1,700 gallons of water in it with reasonably full. That's a really big aquaponic system. So it's probably not worth it. But if you wanted to scale down and do that, it would make an interesting pond. The other thing it would do for you that your ponds don't is allow you to use volumetric pressure to move water. So what I'm saying by that is if you look at most above-ground pools, somewhere on the side you'll see a filter. And that filter will have a filter basket and an overflow into that basket, and that will set the level of the pool, basically, and it'll pull water down through there, go through the filter, it'll come back through a hose and come through the side of the pool. And that, that hose will be... A uh, foot and a half down from the top. Well, that hole can be, or a new hole can be any height you want it to be with a bulkhead. They're made to to have that happen. So you can put a bulkhead. You drain the pool to do this, or you're going to have a really big mess, and you're probably going to have a blowout if you do it with that much volume. But you drain the pool, you drill a hole, you cut a hole in the liner, put a bulkhead in down at the bottom of the pool, and now you have water that you can move to most places on the property, any place at the same height or lower, you can move water there fairly easily. And honestly, any place that's lower than the top of the elevation of the water in the pool, which of course being above ground is four foot, three foot up, right? You can move water with just volumetric pressure because you have whatever downhill side, but you also have all the volume of that water acting as pressure. You think about it this way, fill up a 55-gallon drum, and drill a hole in the top of it, and the water kind of comes out, you know. But drill a hole in the bottom, like, that's all that volumetric pressure. So you could then rig up, depending on where your pool's located, some way to get water from roof catchment into the pool and begin doing 10,000 gallons worth of water catchment and use any, any roof surfaces that you can. And one way to do that would be something like, if you elevated an IBC on a tower and allowed that to fill from the downspout on the roof, it would then have enough pressure to equalize out and volumetric pressure and elevation pressure to, to then dump water into the pool. So if the bottom of that tank was one foot higher than the top of that pool, you could put water in it even over the rail. Even if it was the same height, you could use another hole in the top of the pool a little bit lower, and you could drain water into the pool up to that height of that hole or to you know the total top if the bottom of the any kind of way that you can hold water and let pressure move the water. And I would use a fairly large pipe for that. You want to be able to move the water out of the IBC or other container as fast as it's coming in, which during a big rainfall could prove to be really quick. The caveat to that, if you're going to do that, you're going to nowhere near maintain a pool, and you don't really want pool water anyway for that. So the only way to keep the ecosystem and not have a big, skanky, nasty pool is going to be then to turn it into a pond. I guess the other thing you could do is tarp it, and then basically you have a water tank. You can do the same thing with it. Now you have 10,000 gallons of reserve water that you can move passively to do irrigation and things like that. But I would be highly tempted to turn it into a pond. However... Your zone four, I don't know if the pond's going to freeze to the bottom. Well, here's what you could do to find that out. Fill the pond up. Your winter's coming. Just let it sit there through the winter and see what happens. See if it freezes all the way through. I don't think that it will. That's an awful lot 
of water to turn into an ice cube, uh, but it may do it such that you know there's no oxygen down there and whatever you did have would die. So I don't know if it works. I've never tried to run an above ground pond uh, that far north. I have no idea. So I don't know. My last advice, and it might be the best in the situation: sell it on Craigslist. Sell it on Craigslist. Get a few hundred bucks for it. Let someone come pick it up, take it home, and somebody that wants a pool in a climate where you use a pool for two to three months out of the year, uh, have the pool. That would probably be your easiest option. All right, next up we have one from David, a really short one. I asked for anybody to come up with any other uses for a sous vide machine, and uh, he said uh, he did a um, pork processing workshop. People had to keep washing their hands, and it was 17 degrees out. So what they did is they set up a hand-rinsing station, put the sous vide circulator in there, and probably set the temperature somewhere around 70 degrees. So people probably had an incentive to rinse their hands off rather than not wanting to. So I think that's a really good one, just really short. I thought I would uh, share that with you. And the last one here is from Michelle. Michelle says, hey, Jack, I was looking at some of your pictures over the weekend and last week of the food you've been eating on low-carb. We've been doing that, too, here. Uh, you mentioned blue cheese dressing a couple times, and it got me wondering, do you have a good recipe for making keto-friendly and healthy blue cheese? Blue cheese, is not, blue cheese dressing is not that high in carbs, but it's made with a lot of things I can't pronounce, and the number one ingredient is soybean oil. I really try to avoid soybean oil as best I can, so what say you to that? All right, so here's the thing. If you want to make the very best blue cheese dressing you can, you either need to make your own mayonnaise or you need to go find a mayonnaise that is like a natural, like there's an avocado oil mayo or something like that. It's organic. So you can start out with your own uh, mayo and then you're good to go. But to make mayo is real easy. Um, so here's how I make mayonnaise and I think it's worth learning how to do because it will uh, allow you to do more than just blue cheese and have complete control. And if you have your own eggs, and I'll talk about egg safety here at the end, but um, you have your own eggs, you have the ability to make some of the best mayo ever. So I'm assuming you're using chicken eggs instead of duck eggs like me. So duck eggs are actually one carb to an egg. Uh, chicken eggs are four. There is a little bit of carbs in eggs, just so you know. All right, now, so how are we going to make the mayo? We need one cup of oil. It could be olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil. Uh, the other thing you can even use, you can even use lard. Lard actually makes really great mayo. Uh, you'll just need to heat it warm enough that it will melt and be liquid. And we need one large raw egg. Some people don't like to use raw egg white because it can actually bind up with biotin in the body. I don't sit down and eat mayo by the spoonful, though, so I'm not that worried about it. If you are, you can make this with only the yolk, though it'll be a little different in color. So one raw egg, one tablespoon of mustard, uh, whatever you like. I like a CD mustard, kind of brown. A Dijon will work, but a tablespoon of mustard. At least one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar and one tablespoon of salt. All of that equals four-tenths of a carb to make your mayo, and here's the beauty of how to do it. And I'll give you a website that I base my stuff on for these two recipes that you can use to get more procedure. But if you take a big quart jar, you put all that stuff in the quart jar, and you use an immersion blender, you stick it all the way to the bottom, and you start blending, and you start really slowly pulling the immersion blender up. Generally, by the time, I mean real, real slow, 
By the time you get to the top, you got mayo. It's that fast. If you don't, go back down and up one more time. If there's any oil sitting on the surface, go back down and up one more time until you have mayonnaise. Now you have mayonnaise. Now, if you don't want to do that, you go find a good mayonnaise that meets your seal of approval. Go find a whole fat organic sour cream that meets your seal of approval. And go find an organic whipping cream that meets your seal of approval. And go find a blue cheese crumble that meets your seal of approval. All right? And this is what we're going to do. We're going to take one cup of that good mayo, which is four-tenths of a carb. We're going to take one cup of whole-fat organic sour cream. The brand I use is 9.8 carbs. Check your label. You need one cup and use an organic sour cream. You're doing all this for nothing, right? And I'm going to say one thing about dairy. Dairy is the one place I failed to. Com- I will. I refuse to compromise on organic. It's too inexpensive, and too valuable to stay organic. There, two tablespoons of organic whipping cream, three quarters of a cup of blue cheese crumbles, one teaspoon of salt, and one teaspoon of coarse black pepper, uh, coarse cracked black. And again, I like tillicherry pepper. I think it has so much more flavor. And again, you're doing something for yourself. Um, do the best, right? Uh, so, again, it's one cup of mayo, one cup of whole-fat organic sour cream, two tablespoons of whipping cream, three-quarters of a cup of blue cheese crumbles, one teaspoon of salt, and one teaspoon of coarse cracked black. And this is all in today's show notes. I, put the, I didn't put the procedure, but I put the ingredients there for you. Now, I'm going to tell you how I differ. Basically, what the website that I've got a link to for you in the, in the resources links says, dude, just put it all together and mix it up. And they said to use one-half cup of blue cheese. And the guy says he likes more blue cheese, but his wife doesn't. So he reduced it. I want the dressing itself, the sauce, to be blue cheese-like, and I want crumbles. So what I'm going to do when I make mine, I'm going to put the sour cream in first. And I'm going to put in one quarter cup of the three quarter cups of blue cheese. And I'm going to take my immersion blender and I'm going to blend the blue cheese into the sour cream. Okay? Once that's fully blended in. So now I've made blue cheese flavored sour cream. I'm going to take the immersion blender out. I'm not going to use it anymore. It's going to make things too whipped if we do that. Now we're going to put the one cup of mayo in. We're going to put in uh, the rest of the blue cheese, which is a half a cup. A teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of cracked black pepper, and we're going to give it a nice mix. We want a coarse ground cracked black fresh when you do this because you've got the, the beautiful smell of the cracked pepper, but also when you're dropping it in there, aromatic oils are going to get leached into the dressing itself. Really great flavor. And we're just going to mix that in with a spoon, and we're done. It's that simple. Now you've got real blue cheese with actual chunks in the flipping blue cheese. Um, if you're going to go with a commercial variety, about the best from a carb standpoint and taste standpoint, but not a health standpoint, is called Ken's Steakhouse. And Ken's Steakhouse is one carb per serving. So that's why it at least works for low-carb keto, but it is soybean oil, all kinds of soybean oil off in it. All right, so the one I came up with is 17 carbs for the whole yield of about two and a half cups. It's actually a little more than that. Because the blue cheese, while it gets knocked down a bit in volume, takes up some volume. But based on two and a half cups, it's 0.43 carbs a serving. So it's half of even the lowest I can find because there's no sugars in it. If you want it to be a little sweet, you can use some erythritol or some stevia in it. I don't find that to be necessary. And it actually tastes like blue cheese. And it actually has chunks of blue cheese in it. And it's actually healthy for you. And if you don't give a damn about low carb, it's still a way better blue cheese dressing. And then go use Hellman's mayonnaise. 
You know, if you, if you don't care about the health side of it, you just want really good tasting blue cheese, do the same thing and use Hellman's. Uh, but this is really just an excellent set of skills to develop because you're developing the ability to make dressings and you're developing the ability to make your own mayo. On the safety aspect of the eggs, salmonella in eggs is actually exceedingly rare, even in fresh eggs on the farm. This is my advice for you on any eggs you're going to use raw. Number one, use them as fresh as possible. Like for boiled eggs, I like to use them older. But if you're going to do mayo, use the freshest eggs possible. Number two, candle the eggs that you're going to use this way and make sure there's no cracks, breaks, whatever in the shells. And then number three, just use them. If you're really worried about this at all, here's the other way you can do this, and you can eliminate any potential for salmonella. You're just going to have a tangier, uh, not the same as but closer to Miracle Whip style mayo than mayo. What you're going to do is you're going to increase the apple cider vinegar uh, from one tablespoon when you make the mayonnaise to four, and then leave it out at room temperature. I know, oh my God, it's going to mayonnaise will kill you. No, it won't. Leave it out at room temperature for at least four hours, and the acidity will create an environment that is uninhabitable for salmonella microbes. But I don't do that, and if raw eggs were going to kill me, I would be dead a long time ago. It's up to you, and if you really, if that's your problem, then you can get you know irradiated, pasteurized eggs from the market and use those when you make your mayo, and then there's no potential there unless you mishandle the food after the fact. But um, honest to God, you're less likely to probably get uh, salmonella from using raw egg this way uh, than you are to get salmonella from sprouts that you buy at the supermarket and rinse off and eat raw. Just that's that's the numbers to say that. All right. So we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it as we rock on our week of episode 2500. Remember, tomorrow I'll be here with a Just Jack show. Wednesday we'll have an interview. Thursday we will have a rewind because we want to drop episode 2500 on a Friday. And I'll throw this out to you. I said the deadline to call in for episode 2500 was when? Saturday. Because I'm pushing it out to Friday, if you want to call in today, you can. If you call in after today, it will not matter. The folder will have been cleaned out, and you won't get on the show, but you can still call in today. Uh, let's now talk about how you can support this show. One way, you can join the Members Brigade. Just go to the site and click on Members to learn more about that. The other way, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, every day I review an item for you. I put all of those items in a catalog that's available on my website, and the short link to get there is tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. When you get there, you can take a look at all of the stuff that we've done. You can see the latest reviews, etc. And uh, anything that you buy, whether it's something I've reviewed or not, as long as you start there, uh, helps support us and the work that we do. Today's item is one I realized I hadn't brought around for a while. I really need to, and it made me realize there's another book I need to add to my book list by the same author that I haven't yet. This book is called Perennial Vegetables by Eric Tosenmeyer. And Eric is... Uh, Probably not as well-known as you should be. Eric worked with Dave Jackie and wrote the two-volume set called Edible Forest Gardens, which is just amazing work. And Eric did most of the truly academic work on that. But Dave, having a bigger name at the time and being the lead author, kind of gets when, when people hear Edible Forest Gardens, they think Dave Jackie. Uh, and Eric being... And, and Dave has flat-out said, every time I've ever heard him speak about his work... 
without Eric, this doesn't happen. He's as much a part. It's not Dave doing this. It's just public perception, right? So I don't want to be misunderstood there. But Eric has kind of built up a lot on his own, and he wrote this book, Perennial Vegetables. And it, it you will learn things in it that you just won't learn anywhere else. Um, he's also wrote a book called Paradise Lot, and I loved that book because it was written as a story about what he... And a partner of his named Jonathan did. Uh, they actually bought like a duplex in Massachusetts, and initially lived in one side of it together, and because it needed a lot of work, and then worked on the backyard, turned it into like a permaculture paradise in an urban situation. And then as they got enough money, they started working on the other side. And I think their original plan, if I remember right, in the book was like to rent it out. But then both of them found you know wives. And so that one took the other side, and now they live as neighbors with a common backyard. And the storyline makes all of the education really interesting. So even though today's book is Perennial Vegetables, there's also a link for Paradise Lot, which is this storybook. And both of those are just fantastic. You might want to check them out. They'll add a lot to your backyard. And remember, you support us no matter what you buy, as long as you start your shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. This is a really interesting one, and I basically skipped the Monday song because I really want to play the Friday song at the end of the uh, 2500 episode that just turned out to be, so I had to do some juggling, and I didn't really like the Monday song John selected for us, so called an audible and pulled the Tuesday song in, and it's called In the Blood, uh, which was originally written and performed, uh, not written, but performed by John Mayer. I'm not sure if he wrote it or not. Um, but this is a version done by a band that's more of a country band, and I would call what they do almost a cappella, uh, called Home Free. And what I mean by almost a cappella is it kind of starts out that way, but then there is some music in the background, but it really focuses on the vocals, and it's not the type of music that you normally have with the song where it's overpowering. Uh, it's all about the vocals of the song, and they do a beautiful job with it. And what this song is really about is are you really your mother and father's son from a standpoint of because you carry their genetics, it is required that you or biology would dictate that you come out a certain way, that you will be a certain man or a certain woman because of your genetics. And if so, if, you're, if your parents weren't good people, does that mean you're not going to be good people? Or if your parents were good people, does that mean that you're destined to be good people too? What does it mean? How much of your mother is in you? How much of your father is really in the blood that you carry? And my answer to that is, I'd like to believe it to be very little. And I know that maybe some of my personal issues with my family may dictate that, but even if it wasn't the case, you know, I would say that my son, who carries none of my blood, is an awful lot like me. Because I believe I was a positive influence on him. And I believe he wanted to be like me because of that. And I believe that he's almost nothing like his birth father who quit on life and slowly killed himself over 10 years of drug abuse and not taking care of his diabetes. So my son is more like me than he is like his blood father. He's awful lot like his mother, but I believe that's more because of how she raised him alongside with me than the common blood flows in their veins. And we all know people who come from incredibly great families who turn out to be complete dirtbags. 
and we all know people that come from families full of dirtbags, like me, uh, that, that end up you know, turning out pretty well and doing some pretty good things. And I don't think there's any doubt that some of the biggest influence that we have in our lives is from our parents. But is it in the blood or is it in the upbringing? And then we, do we choose to break free from it? Or do we choose to stay true to it if it's positive? That's the other side. Like You can't just assume that you're going to be a good person because you come from a good family either. I think the onus is on us as we mature into adults to do the best we can in the situation that we're in and always try to be able to do a little bit better the next day. What's in the blood? The answer to that is I don't really know. I think the real question is what's in the bond? And as parents, that's what we should be trying to form, is a bond that is thicker than the blood itself. A bond that is such that that young person, as they grow into an adult, and we have no authority over them anymore. We've done our job, which is to work ourselves out of a job, that they want to be like us in some way, because we did a good job. On the other side, I never want my son to live for me. Or when he knows what he really wants in life, as long as it's not something really bad, to say, well, Jack wouldn't do that. Who cares what Jack would do? Who cares what Dorothy would do? What does Matt want to do, whether it's in the blood or not? What do you want for your life? What do you want for your children? This is how you build a better life. By understanding that there's so much that can come from our parents or our grandparents or our uncles or others that influence us. But in the end, it's not about the blood and it's not even about the upbringing. It's about the choices we make as we, we take each step in our walk that we call life. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. How much of my mother... Has my mother left in me? And how much of my love will be insane to some degree? And what about this feeling that I'm never good enough? Will it wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? How much of my father am I destined to become? Will I dim the lights inside me just to satisfy someone? Will I let this woman kill me or do away with jealous love? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? I can feel the love I want. I can't feel the love I need But it's never gonna come the way I am Could I change it if I wanted? Can I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? How much like my brother's do my brothers want to be? Does a broken home become another broken family? Will we 
be there for each other like nobody ever could? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? I can feel the love I want, I can feel the love I need, but it's never gonna come the way I am. Could I change it if I wanted? Can I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? Always in the blood. Oh. 